Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 107. I think broadly speaking, uh, with, with, I guess, my role, it's, it's, it's translating the numbers into the action. So it's sort of asking yourself, okay, well, what can this coach do with this information? So I think how you can get certain messages across probably becomes one of the most important parts of, of the job. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, and today we're joined by Carmen Colomer, the Director of Sports Science for the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA. Carmen, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. Really appreciate it. Excited to have you on today. Uh, learn a little bit about the NBA. You guys are off to a, a great start to the season. We are connecting right around the time of the All-Star break, so I definitely want to uh, ask some questions related to sports science in the NBA, some of the things you're doing with, uh, with your players. But before we get too far in, uh, lead us up to where we're at today with your background. How did you get started in this field? Uh, yeah, sure. So I um, started my bachelor degree back in 2011, so quite a while ago now. Uh, that was at Victoria University, which is in Melbourne, Australia. And so my time there, I was doing a Bachelor of Sports Science and Sport Coaching. I sort of took all the physiology subjects, sort of decided I really liked that, that area. Uh, during my time there, I also did an uh, study abroad program in Germany at the German Sport University, which was also a pretty amazing experience at the time. Uh, after that, I and during that time as well, I also did an internship at the Victorian Institute of Sport uh, as a physiologist there. And after that, I started my Masters of High Performance Sport, which was at Australian Catholic University. And then during that, I did a research component, which I ended up doing with the the Melbourne Rebels, which is a rugby union team that play in the um, in the Super Rugby competition, which is a Southern Hemisphere competition. Uh, then after that, I was lucky enough to get a position as a postgraduate scholar in physiology at the Australian Institute of Sport. So I did that for a year, which was which was just amazing. And I felt so lucky to, to be there at such like a well-renowned institution. Um, and then straight off the back of that, I was also, again, very lucky to get a, um, a PhD, so an embedded PhD, which means... I was full-time with the ACT Brumbies, so I stayed in Canberra for that um, with my one of my amazing supervisors, Ben Serpel, who was the high performance manager at the time, and uh, did about did that for about two and a half years until uh, sort of got headhunted a little bit for a for a job at the Brisbane Broncos in in the rugby league, so I switched codes there. And, um, and did that for a year. And then the, um, the 76ers uh, sort of came up. So like you're saying, we're at the top of the conference, but I feel like a bit of a blister. I've shown up after all the hard work was done. Um, I've only started about five weeks ago. So, so it's all quite new to me. Oh, that's cool. You've had a lot of different experiences, uh, really. And this is sort of a theme we hear whenever we are interviewing uh, coaches and researchers coming from Australia is that that embedded PhD route where you're getting a lot of hands-on experience. Let's dive into the MBA a little bit. I want to ask you 
you know, it's your first five weeks, you know, what's your initial impression and uh, what's sort of the outlook for the role and things you're looking forward to? Yeah, look, it's it's completely different to anything I've, I've experienced before. I mean, look, like you, everyone talks about the the travel and the, the playing schedule, the obviously the congested nature of it all. So that's taken some some getting used to, and that it really sort sort of makes you think about the the theoretical versus the the applied side. So, you know, in in, in theory, a lot of things might be great to implement, but in practicality wise, um, the likely just won't they just won't work or perhaps an athlete won't want to do something that you might suggest uh, in terms of my day-to-day role. So I think like in the broader sense, I feel like I provide ob- objective data for subjective decision-making. So I think um, sometimes there can be a sort of two ends of the spectrum with sports science. Some people who think that there's one number that sort of answers all the questions and other people who potentially don't, don't believe in it. And I sort of try and be as much as I can in the middle and just sort of say, well, here are the numbers um, and, and it's up to you now what you'd like to do with it. Um, I think like obviously there's, that involves like a lot of tech. So I collect a lot of the data, I analyse it and then interpret it. So, you know, there's always the... Um, in terms of inferences, like am I appropriately analysing the data and sort of um, understanding if there has been a meaningful change there as well. So I think that's that's where sort of sports science comes in rather than just looking at, say, a percentage change, we can actually look at um, a few more, say, higher level statistics and sort of understand when a change has occurred. Uh, yeah, obviously... We use GPS or of the like, so LPS, local positioning systems. And so that obviously players wear that during training. Uh, unfortunately, they're not allowed to wear them in games. However, we do still get data from time motion analysis. And I think that's really important from, say, uh, profiling the game, but uh, more importantly, probably profiling the individual. So it might be that a player plays amazingly, but their numbers might not be that great. But, you know, that, but that just might be their style of play or so on. But, of course, you always need to, to understand that a player does need to sort of um, hit, I guess, certain numbers or at least be able to maintain certain numbers throughout a game. So I, I guess those, that data helps us guide that programming. Uh, and then, yeah, we use force plates. So that's from more potentially a monitoring perspective. Uh, so we have a few different force plates. Um, some athletes probably more periodic than others, just depending on a few things. So whether they have certain qualities that we're trying to improve or if there are discrepancies and so on in, in lower limbs. But it's also a really good way to just see how an athlete is responding. So we can talk all we want about external load, but I think um, actually understanding how the athlete responds to certain internal load measures, that's where we get like a lot of really valuable information in that in that sense. And um, sorry, I feel like it's a longer answer to a very short question, but um, oh, I think like <laughs> I think broadly speaking, 
with with I guess my role, it's 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 translating the numbers into the action. So it's sort of asking yourself, okay, well, what can this coach do with this information? So I think how you can get certain messages across probably becomes one of the most important parts of, of the job. So people people talk about um, load monitoring and so on. And I think that's, of course, it's extremely important, but I probably see that more of a roadmap on how then to progress or potentially regress if there's been periods, say COVID, where there's been a shutdown and so on. And um, and how and how to say progress after there's been a, a, a period of no training whatsoever. It's interesting. And I, I mentioned that we're right around the all-star break now. I know that's a time of the season when players are, uh, they're typically excited for the break, you know, and just to get a little bit of uh, recovery. And that's something I want to ask you about is, you know, recovery is a term that gets thrown around, but during a professional season, you're always doing something. You're always practicing. You're always playing. You're traveling. Uh, and with multiple games a week, you know, how is recovery accomplished and monitored and, and what's sort of your approach or, you know, an approach within the NBA to manage athletes at that level uh, and just some of the key elements of that? Yeah, I mean, look, exactly what you said, it's, it's becomes the most important part of it all. Uh, I think, you know, in a lot of other sports, you can sort of periodize recovery and, and you can, of course, do that in, in the NBA as well. Um, but I, I feel in, in other sports, there's always been sort of more of an adaptation period or there's periods where you can allow for adaptation and so on. Whereas, um, you know, obviously you, you can have recovery without adaptation. So then that's probably where the focus relies more is this, how to, can we actually just recover acutely? Uh, so, you know, our schedule is every second day and, and in our, I think in the first two weeks of the, the second half of the schedule, we have three back-to-backs in less than two weeks. Um, but usually it would be game on, game off. So essentially it becomes play, recover, play, recover, play, recover. I think the the travel element adds in a whole different layer of, of what you need to consider when it comes to recovery. So you think about we're playing a back-to-back and we finish the game at 10 o'clock or 10.30 at night, and then we need to get to the airport, we need to get on the plane, we need to fly to the new location, we've potentially crossed a time zone or two, um, and then we need to still get to the hotel and so on and, and then wind down after that and then you've got the next day and you've, you're playing that following night. So I think it just becomes about sort of fine-tuning certain areas. Like everybody knows how to sleep, but, of course, there's, there's sleep hygiene um, elements which can be optimised. So we sort of look at a few of those, those areas. You know, you think about when you're on a plane, there's the, tri, the dry um, recycled air, which is sort of causing potentially a little bit more dehydration. So we sort of think of, okay, what are some hydration strategies we can include here? Obviously, keeping it. Keep, like considering the time zone changes and which direction we're traveling. If you're traveling eastward, then you've got that sort of um, having to, to go to bed a bit earlier, which tends to be more challenging for the body. Whereas if you're, if you're traveling westward, then, you know, you just have to stay up a little bit later, which seems to be a little bit easier. Um, 
so I think, and then obviously disrupt, disrupting the, the sleep routine. So, you know, typically you've got a circadian rhythm where you're in bed by a certain time every night and your body naturally wakes at a certain time every morning. But if that's getting disrupted every two days or three days, you know, that can it's an add a whole different element. So I think, you know, travel, travel fatigue and jet lag are two completely different things. And when you've got that combination of both together, it just becomes... Um, like just a huge consideration. I think last point is that, you know, in, in most sports or in most of the literature, you'd hear them talking about having 72 hours to recover post games, but <laughs> unfortunately we don't have that luxury. So I think we just sort of capitalize on, on I guess, uh, finely tuning things. If there's any low hanging fruit, that's where we sort of migrate towards first. We'll always look at, I guess, the cost to benefit ratio. And and if there doesn't seem to be much of a cost or any downsides to what we want to implement, then we typically at least just give it a go. Um, yeah. No, you, you spoke to the technology and how that is involved in the sports science process. Uh, and you spoke to the value of just a dedicated role of being a sports scientist uh, as part of a NBA team, as part of a sport performance staff. Here in the U.S., I think we see this evolution towards interdisciplinary communication and, and just the, the role of uh, everybody has their area of expertise, but everybody needs to work together to optimize uh, performance and and best and create best practices for an organization. Where does sports science and your role fit in that interdisciplinary conversation? Yeah, that's a it's a really good question. Um, I think, I mean, within the department, I feel like all all the areas really need to be aligned, and I feel like sports science is a really quite holistic view because it can sort of it. it some people ask me what sports science is and I say, well, it's a really specific vocation, but it's also not a vocation at all um, because it can sort of sit across quite a few different areas. And I think, you know, it's, it's always going to vary on the department that you're in and the, the sport that you're in. Um, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that it always comes back to what the, the coach's goal is. So really understanding what the, the coach's goal is, what, the end he has in mind and then how can I best sort of provide the information to the respective departments and that we're all on board and this all aligns with our own goals but ultimately for the the coach's goal as well so I like to for, for example um, after a game I might send the reports to the whole athlete care department and I'll provide certain recommendations based on say it's recovery or what the next steps should be um, or potentially how the athlete might be feeling and so on. And each respective department can take that information and implement it. Um, so, for example, whether they need to uh, do a little bit less in the gym that day or whether they need to do a little bit more recovery or they're going to get treatment from this person or, or that person. And I think that comes back to the common goal of well, what's the, the coach's common goal if it's to make sure that all the athletes say feel fresh, for example, then I feel like that that contributes to it all. That's awesome. Um, I want to go back to the beginning for you a little bit and just um, 
ask, you know, who have been some of the biggest influences uh, in your career that have kind of led you down this path or um, given you great advice along the way? I don't know. I've thought about why I've worked with such amazing people and I, I thought, oh, God, I've been so lucky. But then I thought maybe sport attracts good people. But then I thought perhaps only the good people survive. I can't figure out which one it is. But... <laughs> I've genuinely, you know, like I, when I was at Melbourne Rebels, I was under Bryce Kavanagh, um, albeit no, not a very short time, but he was outstanding. And then, um, you know, even at the VIS, Rodney Siegel was great. Um, and then moving on to um, obviously the AIS where, you know, David Pine, who's still currently my supervisor for my PhD, who is just a, a powerhouse in the in the in the well, pracademic, let's call it field. So, um, practitioner and ac academic, and of course, I mentioned Ben Sapel before, who is just probably one of the most well-rounded high performance managers I've been lucky enough to work underneath and to know because he not only has a PhD himself. Um, but he also continues to research and has quite a few PhD students under him, really has a very holistic view of, of performance and so always sort of challenged my assumptions. And, um, and even to this day, you know, we, we text three, four times a week and, and still keep in contact a lot. And then, you know, going to um, the Brisbane Broncos and I, I worked with Paul Devlin and then Andrew Kroll, who's now just taken the reins, who I think is going to do, you know, amazing things. And I feel like, again, I've been so lucky and just good people and everyone has their own strengths, you know, whether it's Andrew Kroll and his personality and his energy that he brings every day or it's Ben Sapel with his inquisitiveness and, um, you know, I just... Yeah, uh, there's so many. There are genuinely so many. Uh, Grant Duthie, he he's outstanding as well. So yeah, I could go on forever. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and and just on that, you know, we have a lot of young strength and conditioning coaches, but you know, as the NSCA expands into the world of sports science, we have a number of people, you know, young and aspiring sports scientists listening to this podcast as well. Um, just from your experience, what makes a sports scientist or high performance manager successful? Well, I'll go back to what I was just saying. You've got to be a good person. <laughs> I think, you know, people always say that the, you know, in, in life you, and in, in work, you only really need attitude and the aptitude. So those two things. So you've got to make sure that you turn up every day with, um, with a good attitude and then how quickly can you learn and how quickly can you apply those learnings into something? So I guess the, the application of knowledge. That's great advice. And how we apply our knowledge is vital. I like how you use the term pracademic. I'd never heard that before. But sports science is such a scientifically driven area that continues to expand. Now, speaking to the process of how we apply scientific information, what role does technology play in the process? There's so many ways to do things. So I'm not going to say that the way I do things is, is the best and, and the only way to do it. There might be certain teams that don't use any technology whatsoever. 
I think, um, you know, every, every, everything has its place so long as it's used appropriately. I, I've definitely heard of places, not necessarily the MBA, where they have a lot of technology that they bought initially but now doesn't get used. And I think they need to sort of ask themselves, okay, well, you know, what was the problem that I was trying to solve and what was the, the outcome I was trying to empower by, by purchasing this technology? So I think if you can sort of join the dots and look backwards there and understand, okay, well, the problem was X and the technology has the, the, out, uh, the, the power to potentially um, help this outcome here. Well, you know, and then do we have the right person or do we have um, the right um, processes in place in order to get that information and make those inferences and so on? Um, because I have heard of a lot of places that, that don't use hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of a, equipment. I think another, we definitely use a lot, a lot of ours, but I think there's, you know, probably a lot of other technology that we could get as well. Um, we don't want to throw spaghetti at the wall though. There's no, there's no point of doing that and just collecting data for the sake of collecting data. And I think, um, in any organization, when you first come in, you need to be careful that you're not just trying a hundred things at once. It's, it's, it's typically an iterative process. You implement one thing and maybe sort of fine tune that for a little while before implementing more. I guess another consideration, and this is, this is with any sport, is that, you know, you need to get the, the athlete buy-in. If you're, if you're asking an athlete to wear something, whether it's a, a device to, to look at heart rate variability or to look at how they're sleeping or both, that that's that's a commitment on their behalf too and you know you need to build that trust first so that's probably where the attitude stuff comes in and the soft skills and um you know and it really explaining to them well this this is why i think you should wear it and this is how it could potentially make you better or this is how we'll use this information always with the goal of making making the athlete better or feel better or so on so that then becomes um i guess initially a bit of a limitation until you can sort of develop those relationships and actually ascertain whether the the athletes will be willing to wear certain devices yeah i i think that's uh I think that's great perspective that, you know, you have to remember at the professional level that it, you know, the athletes are key stakeholders that are, you know, they're experts in their craft and they can, um, and they, they're trying to make the best decision for their performance. Uh, and that's a, that athlete buy-in is extremely valuable, arguably the most important thing that, that you need to accomplish. Um, I want to ask you, you know, I think, uh, as you navigate, you know, your early part of your career here, uh, you know, what are some areas that your perspective towards sports science and, and your craft has changed since you uh, first started down this path? Oh, gosh, I would say it's a constant evolution. I don't think I don't think I'm ever right. I don't think anyone in sports science is ever right. I think you just become less wrong. I think I've stolen that that term from someone else, but I completely agree with that. Um, you know, I'm I read so oh geez, sometimes five papers a day on on if something new has come out. I think um, you know I'm on Twitter every day, and that's how a way of me to keep my um, finger on the pulse and what's the latest research or what. What are people doing in other sports that they're sharing and so on? And so, 
I think my views are consistently changing, especially as new technology comes out or potentially some areas um, are now suddenly becoming more and more important, whether it is about recovery or so on. Um, I would, yeah, I think if you ever sort of, I think I've always got pretty solid principles, but I've, I've never sort of been sold on one method of doing something because, and I would never resign myself to the fact that I've only got one way of operating. I think I let my principles guide me and then constantly iterate. It's a great, great perspective. And I think to be a great professional, you have to have systems and processes and principles that you that you fall back on and in in we're essentially building those processes and systems in our in in where we work and, and in our roles but it is very valuable especially with the constant growth within the sports science areas that we keep that open mind to just things that are coming and uh it's uh, yeah, it's, it, that's a great perspective. I'm re- I really uh, I liked how you answered that. I, I think it's really cool. I wanna I wanna ask a little projection question. Just um, I think about the future a lot. You know, I, I remember early in my career, I thought about sort of the landscape of coaching and where it was going, and and that's something I encourage young coaches to do is trying to find a you know a niche in the field where where the field is headed and try to really be deliberate and, and thoughtful towards the, the direction and, and momentum of the field. And, you know, what does the next five, 10 years of sports science look like? I, you can speak from your time in Australia, the way things are headed in, in terms of research, um, even what you're seeing here, you know, what's the, what momentum do you see and where's that going to take us? Things are changing so quickly and obviously COVID threw a huge spanner in the work. So whether that, you know, rather than hindered some progress, might have even accelerated it in certain ways now that we know, so say, for example, um, people can have, this isn't obviously to do with sport, but people can have doctor's appointments online. It's now sort of allowed a lot of um, I guess meetings or so on, or, or whether it's appointments to, to happen online. I think that, that that's potentially started to make its way into sports science as well, just in, in, in certain areas. Um, so I think that could actually help accelerate things as I guess technology and, and big data becomes even, even bigger. I think in, in Australia, there seems to be, so like coding seems to be a huge part of, of sports science. So, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm an amazing coder, but I'm pretty proficient in, in Python. Um, and whereas I've noticed potentially in the, in the States, there's probably there's data scientists and then there's sports scientists, I'd say. Um, so whether that, uh, I feel like it could go either way that, uh, sports scientists will have to know how to code um, or whether they'll sort of separate a little bit more and clubs will start to hire full-time data scientists and then have the sports scientists separate to that. So I'm not sure if that really answers your question that way. No, that's good. That's a really great perspective because I think, you know, here in the States and, and anywhere, there's going to be high resource programs that have multiple staff and a lot of technology to put in play. And then there's going to be lower resource programs where 
you know, that sports scientist or even the strength and conditioning coach might be stepping into that role or doing some of the creating some of the data visualizations or whatever that is in that in that context. And so it brings to light an area of the field that is gaining a lot of attention of coding and coding languages as essential sports science skills. It's something we don't really talk about a lot. What advice do you have for aspiring coaches and sports scientists to learn those skills? So that's, I mean, like a lot of the stuff that I get and a lot of the tutorials I watch, so on, whether I'm just upskilling in, in certain packages on, on Python and stuff or whether I want to learn about a new topic, it, it often comes from Twitter, So, and which leads to, to YouTube, of course. And so I'd say that... <laughs> Um, I'd say there's, there's, you know, a million and one um, different, um, I guess, places you could subscribe to, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on a blog or so on, and, and just follow along at home. I'd say, you know, you really have to learn to, to work with data and, and, and learn to analyse it properly. So, you know, ensuring that you understand basic principles such as, you know, the typical error in a measurement, the small, smallest worthwhile change, you know, typical error expressed as a percentage, so the coefficient of variation, and, and understand those terms as, as a starting point. And then so you can start to make those, those inferences, um, but also then understanding, okay, well, what is the practical application of this? So, of course, like if there are inspiring sports scientists out there, you know, like, like dip a toe in, you know, go try and do your best to get an internship. I know that's easier said than done, um, especially in sport, but, um, you know, get out there and start to understand, well, what are, what are the coaches really want to know? And then, you know, if you can get a hold of some data, start playing with that and start sort of seeing if there's a way you can interpret that data and try and, um, answer some of those questions that the coaches or even some of the other practitioners have. That's great. No, I, um, I appreciate that. And I think it's, uh, it's definitely the first time that I've heard Twitter and YouTube referred to as uh, reputable scientific content for aspiring uh, sports scientists, but it does, it speaks to our time and it speaks to, I mean, I'll be honest, I do the same thing every day. I think, you know, having your uh, ear to the ground and just knowing the pulse of the field and the momentum of who's communicating and who's doing what out there. I listen to, or I, I follow Adam Virgil and he's always putting out his, his infographics and uh, in some of his tutorials. And I think there's so many great practitioners out there and uh, we can pick on social media a little bit, but uh, I would be lying if I said, I don't find some great stuff there that it helps me. And I think it is, uh, yeah, it, it's something we have to think about and, maintain uh our level of professionalism and, and responsibility towards uh staying productive at times but it can be very valuable so carmen uh for our listeners today what's the best way they can get in touch if they have questions uh yeah probably on um twitter i'm not <laughs> despite being on it a lot i actually don't post all that much but if i if i get any um private messages, I'll, of course, uh, respond to those. So that's just Carmen Coloma one 
um, on Twitter. And I'm sorry, I should have said before when I was talking about different areas that aspiring sports scientists can learn some more. Of course, I should have plugged the, the sports science textbook. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah, we're uh, we're excited. You know, Duncan French and Lorena Torres Ronda, you know, did a great job as co-editors on this on that book, and just so many impactful voices from the sports science community around the globe on that. So uh, really excited. So for any listeners who haven't got their hands on that textbook yet, Essentials of Sports Science, NSCA's new textbook. And uh, I think it'll be definitely worth your time for a read. So thanks for, thanks for the plug there. Really appreciate it. <laughs> no worries at all. And thank you, Carmen Colomer of the Philadelphia 76ers and all of our listeners for being with us today. Also a big thanks to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. From the NSCA, thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We serve you, the coaching community. So follow, subscribe, and download for future episodes. We look forward to connecting with you again soon and hope you'll join us at an upcoming NSCA event or in one of our special interest groups. For more information, go to nsca.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.